So you can go ahead and be turning to Matthew 27. Um, Like I just prayed, we're kind of getting to the dark, sad parts of this part of the of the of the book. Like we're getting to the end. Right? Jesus has already been he's already been arrested. He's already been he's already been brought. Last week we talked about how he was being tried before all the priests. And they were throwing all of these false charges against him. And they were trying to condemn him for blasphemy, right? They're trying to say, he said all of these things which which we believe to be true. Right about him. So it wasn't blasphemy that, that he was actually speaking. He was actually just speaking truth that he is God and that he is in charge and that he is sovereign and that, that God the Father really is his Father. All of these things we believe to be true. But, but for these priests who were looking for the wrong kind of Messiah, right? This is the thing. We've been talking about this through all of Matthew and that's going to be a major focus for us today. All of these people who keep looking for the wrong Messiah. They've read the scripture. They've read the prophecy. They know what he was supposed to look like. But at all points, they kept looking for the wrong guy. We've been reading 1 Samuel on Sunday nights. If you haven't been here, uh, one of the cool things that we, I love about our church is that we just sit down on Sunday nights. We pick a book of the Bible. We read a few chapters. And then we just talk about it. No real agenda. No, no structure. And it's more just like, let's read. And if we have questions... Ask them and we'll talk about them. And a lot of times we get to some and we're like, I got no idea because I don't study ahead of these for these things because because I want us all to be kind of reacting to the things that we're reading ahead of time to the things that we're reading together and asking the questions that really come up. And we can kind of see how scripture answers itself. But one of the things that that we've seen through first Samuel is, is every time Israel was looking for a king, the first one they got, they got Saul. How does it describe him? He was he was. So much taller than everybody else. And he just had this massive look about him. And he was, he was buff and he was manly and he was powerful. And like, that's obviously a king. That guy looks like a king. And when it came time for Samuel to replace Saul, and he goes, and he goes to the house of Jesse that, that God sends him to, he sees his first son and he's this big, powerful, mighty guy. What does Samuel say? Oh, that's obviously the guy. No. God says, move on, look at the next one. And he kind of starts working his way down the line. And each one gets, I, I, I can just kind of imagine, a little bit smaller, a little bit weaker, and maybe a little bit closer to his mom than his dad. <laughs> right? And each time he's like, really? Not this one? All these other ones look like good kings. But each time it's, no, not this son, not this son, not this son. Until they get to David, who's... The little shepherd boy who wasn't even in the house because the dad didn't think it was worth bringing him in. Because obviously that's not the guy that God would anoint king. Right? Israel was always looking for this picture that they had in their mind of what it is they wanted. They wanted a king. They wanted a powerful king. Because they wanted to be, be seen like all the other nations around the world. They wanted, they wanted their peers, as it were, to feel confident. Oh, these people know what they're doing. They have a powerful looking king, a mighty looking king, a warrior of a king. And that's always kind of been a problem for Israel. And now I still say it's a problem for us. And we're going to talk about that, that that we constantly find ourselves looking for the wrong king, looking for the wrong means of salvation, looking to the wrong things for our hope, the wrong things for our identity. We're wrapping ourselves up in all of these things that aren't what we really need. 
They're the things we think we need. They're the things we want, but they aren't really the king that we want. And that's, that's so what has been blinding the religious leaders for all of Jesus' ministry, right? They kept seeing this guy isn't saying the things the way we want him to say it. We want him to talk about the things that we like. We want him to say we should still be in power. We should still have authority. And he keeps telling us we're doing it all wrong and that he's going to break everything. And they're looking for the wrong guy. They're looking for somebody who's going to come in and validate the way that things have been done. And that is not what God had ever intended for them. And so, and so the more we've worked through this, and up until last week, that was kind of the, the climactic moment where Jesus was facing his accusers. And they're bringing all these charges of blasphemy because they're saying he is basically blaspheming against our picture of who God is and who we want him to be. And we want him eliminated. But the irony of the whole thing is they want to eliminate him, but they don't even have the authority to eliminate Jesus. And that's why at the end of last week, we read that they sent him off to Pilate to be, to be tried. Because, because ultimately, Israel is under the authority of Rome. Rome's the one in charge. They can condemn him of, of an offense. They can say the, the, the charge... Has been, has been brought against him and the punishment for this is supposed to be death. But they have no authority to do that. They have no authority to execute someone. They are still under Roman authority. So that's where we're picking up today. They're going to send Jesus off to meet Pilate, who is the governor from Rome, who's been there all along. So if you'll go ahead and turn, Matthew chapter 27, we're going to pick up in verse 11. It says, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. So let's just stop right there and again. I just want to, I want us all to realize just how little authority the priests had at this point. They're going to him, they're, they're bringing all of these charges, and, and you'll notice the thing that they're charging him with, the thing that he's being asked by Pilate, is a very different question than what he had been asked previously by all the high priests. The questions had changed. Before, they were asking him, are you the Christ? Are you saying that you're God? But this isn't the sort of thing, blasphemy would mean nothing to the Roman government. Fine, he's blaspheming against your God. We don't even really believe in your God. What good would that charge of blasphemy do in the Roman court? So they've changed the terms for the things they're trying him under. They're trying to get him executed for being more of an insurrectionist. He's saying, this, they're coming and saying, this guy has said that he's the king of the Jews and that he's going to overthrow Rome and that he's going he's to fight back against you. They're basically trying to make him sound like, in a sense, a terrorist to Rome. Somebody's going to come in and try to take them out. So they're trying to levy different charges against him. They're going to weigh more heavily against Pilate's conscience, something that he's going to be more afraid of. And that's what we see in that challenge that he asks to Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? Much less focused on Jesus's, on Jesus being our Messiah and our means of salvation and our means of hope, right? Instead, he's coming and saying, are you saying that you're a king and you're going to take over politically? Is that what you're saying? And Jesus says, you have said so. Like, that is also part of who Jesus is. He's not just 
our priest. He's not just a prophet. He is our king. And he is ultimately going to physically be here with us, ruling and reigning over his people. But the thing that, and we've talked about this all through Matthew, that has been a thing they have missed all along. That that wasn't why he was there this time. He was there for salvation in a spiritual sense this time. But in the future when he comes back, that's when he's actually going to be our king. He wasn't there to just overthrow Rome and become a short-term political solution for them. Even though that was what they really wanted. That was what they thought their hope was in. And so these charges are changed so that, so that Jesus can do that. And, and, and he says, are you saying that you're the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, yes. And then they start throwing all of this other mud at him. They start throwing all this other evidence. And if you read in some of the other accounts, they bring up the fact that he says, oh, he said he was going to tear down the temple. And he said that he was going to do all of these things. So they try to make him sound like this violent, aggressive uh, leader to try to stir up some sort of fear in Pilate. But it says all the while Jesus just stood there. He didn't even give an answer. Right? And Pilate's like, are you not going to, do you hear all these things that they're saying? Because Pilate knows. Pilate understands. And the, and the more we're going to continue to read, the more we're going to understand the mindset of Pilate. Pilate gets that they're just trying to eliminate a guy who's annoying to them. Pilate doesn't think they have anything. Pilate doesn't think Jesus has done anything. He even says that later on. So he's trying to give Jesus, he's like, if you just defend yourself even a little bit, I can let you off. But Jesus is silent. Jesus doesn't respond. He answers the initial charge and then he sits there and he takes it the rest of the way. Caleb read from uh, Isaiah 53 last week, um, but I'm just going to go back to uh, verse 7 from Isaiah 53 now, um, just because I want us to get this in mind. This is what Isaiah says would be true of the future Messiah. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So Jesus is coming before them. He knows he is innocent. We know that he didn't do anything worthy of death. But yet, he's going to sit there and take it for a couple of reasons. One, because God said he would. Because he was going to just sit there quietly. He's, again, fulfilling all of these prophecies that, that the whole Old Testament has been saying to point to this guy. Say, this is the guy. He's always going to be the guy. He was always the guy. He's, again, just answering all of these things and, again, saying, see, this really is me. I'm taking all of this. But even more so, and we're going to get to this because I want to kind of get you thinking in this way. Because he knew that this was the plan all along. He knew that this was always the way that salvation was going to be offered. This is the way that salvation was going to be made possible. And if he, starts to, and if he was to defend himself at this point and get off, he's not going to die. And that's the only means that there was for salvation for us. That was the only solution ever for repairing the broken relationship that we have with God as a result of our sin. So Jesus was perfectly innocent. He had no desire to become a political savior, right? Because he could have become a political savior, I would assume, if you want. But yet, he silently stood by, offered no defense, because he understood the will of the Father. We read about that a couple weeks ago when he was praying and saying, Hey, if there's another way that we can get out of this, I'm okay with that. But it's not my will, it's yours. He said, if this is still your will, if this is still the only way, then let's go. And here it is. 
He, he, he's willing to stand here condemned, even though he is an innocent man, offering no defense, because he knows it's the will of the Father, and it's the means of salvation for the world. Um, so when you're reading, when we read these sections, what is our emotional state? Are we like, oh, this is the thing that happened, and then he's going to be crucified, and we kind of gloss over it? Or do you feel a little bit angry that these guys are accusing this guy, turning him into this villain so that he can be you know, executed for all of these crimes that he didn't commit. Um, I don't know if, um, I don't know how many of you watch Netflix, but who watched uh, Making a Murderer on Netflix? A few of us. The, the twins, obviously, <laughs> loved Making a Murderer. Uh, I'm not going to try to get in and say, I think this guy was innocent or this guy was guilty. Because the whole point of that is a, it's a documentary about a guy who was accused of committing murder, and he claimed he was innocent, and the way that they present the story in the documentary, that's the way I'm going to say this, the way they present the story, they want you to feel like this guy's innocent, and he's being, he's being thrown away for life for something that he didn't do because the state was out to get him. Right? That's the way they kind of present the story. And as you watch it, they do a really good job of making you feel really angry on behalf of this guy. You're like, I cannot believe that they're going to try to do this to this guy in this way. And I am so mad, right? They make you feel, I can't believe that this is happening. This is so unjust. Do we feel that way when we're reading these verses about Jesus? Because it's the exact same idea, except we know for sure that he is innocent. We know for sure that he hasn't done any of these things, these crimes that they're levying against him. We know that he was perfect, a spotless unsinning person. And yet he's being accused of all these things. He's having all of this mud slung at him so that the people will turn against him so that he can be executed. And do we get angry about that idea? What is our emotional reaction? How do we feel when that happens? It's so easy to be angry when there's injustice brought against us, but, but how often, and this is a great question for us in the church, especially with kind of the climate of our world today. How do we feel? How do we react when we see injustice against anyone? Not, not, just, not just some guy in a Netflix documentary, but actually across the street or in our neighborhood or at school or, or somewhere else in the country, somewhere else in the world. How, how do we react? Are, are, we, are we kind of flippant and relaxed? Oh, that's not us, so I'm good. Or do we get frustrated? Do we get a little bit angry and say, somebody's got to fight for these people who are being treated with such hostility and they don't, they haven't done anything to warrant that. I think it's something for us to think about when we see injustice. And we should, we should kind of feel that way about this as we're reading this text. And I think it's, it's, it's a thing that, that I hadn't maybe noticed in the same way until I had studied it this time through, just seeing what the world is like now and how little um, some people are motivated to fight for overcoming injustice in the world and fighting for those who maybe can't fight for themselves. But even if we were fighting for it, here's the thing. This was still part of the plan. It was still part of the will of God. So even though it was wrong and we should be, in a sense, offended that it's happening, Jesus is willing to endure it for a bigger cause. Let's go ahead and keep reading. Matthew 27, pick up in verse 15. Now, at the feast of the governor, 
Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So this custom that, Pilate, that, that, that it's, it's mentioning here that Pilate had, because um, you have to think of what the people's mindset is with regard to Rome. Like, they're not, like, super cool with Rome. Like, we don't really like Rome. They came in and they overtook our country. Like, they're in charge and we're not. We don't get to do the things the way that we think we're supposed to get to do. We don't like them. They're mean. Right? So because Pilate was kind of made the governor over them, he's kind of their local ruler uh, on behalf of Rome, he, as a means of trying to earn some favor with the people, started this custom where I'll start letting some people out of jail. I'll let some prisoners go so that maybe they'll, they'll be a little bit nicer to me. They'll like me a little bit more. It's kind of his way of kind of buttering the people up just a little bit. You know, I don't want you guys to hate me too bad. See, I'm pretty nice. I'm pretty nice. I can, I can, I can, I can let some people go. We can be friends, right? I'm not all bad. And so he, he had this thing and he realized this is my opportunity to kind of get out of making this decision. Because, because we keep seeing in the way that he's speaking with the people, he doesn't think that Jesus is guilty of anything. He doesn't think that Jesus has done anything worthy of death. There is no punishment that he sees necessary for any of the charges that have been brought against Jesus. Because, and it said, he knew what was going on in their hearts. Where, where is that? It's in verse, 15, verse 18. For he knew that it was out of the envy, out of envy that they had delivered him up. He knew that it was just that Jesus was cramping their style a little bit. So he says, you know what? I get it. You don't like him. But here's the thing. How about you let me let him go instead of this violent criminal over here? And, and let's talk a little bit about who Barabbas is. Because the more I've looked into who Barabbas is, the more I think it reveals the mindset of the people. And the thing that was holding them up with Jesus all along. Because if you read about him in other, in other versions, it talks about how he was a violent man, a murderer. Like this was the worst of the worst. This was a scary guy that you don't, you, we would think, we don't want this guy to be released and out on the streets again. It would probably be better if he's still in prison so that he's not like out killing people. That's a bad thing. We don't want that. You would think. But when you look at what Barabbas was doing, he was more of what I guess the people would vision as a freedom fighter, a champion for their cause politically. He was more like, if you, if you think back through all of the guys who have been following Jesus around, there was a guy in there named uh, Simon the Zealot. And the Zealots were basically like these guerrilla warfare guys who would go in, attack Rome, hide away a little while, and try to slowly chip away so that they could again take back political power of the region. And Barabbas was one of like the most violent leaders of that. That's who this guy was. 
So whenever I was, ra- when I was growing up and I was reading this, it's like, why would they want the violent guy? It must be they really don't like Jesus. But I think what we're seeing here in this choice between Barabbas and Jesus, even more, is a picture of the two ways that they can decide they want to go with their life. Do we want short-term political salvation right now? Because that's what Barabbas represented. Barabbas was the guy who, who represented the idea, he's going to come in, he's going to fight for us, and we're going to try to have a king now. We're going we're to be the kinds of people that we want in this moment. And Jesus was kind of the, let's be patient. We know that Rome is in charge. God wants them to be in charge. I'm bringing a salvation that has a longer term view. I'm not your political savior now. I'm your hope for salvation forever. And what we see is, as these, as these two choices are placed in front of them, the priests have been kind of speaking to the people and saying, you know you don't like Rome. You know you don't want them to be here anymore. This guy represents the first step in us taking back control for ourselves and, and, us, and us being a powerful nation again and us overthrowing these political enemies and having the political salvation that we're so hoping for. And so the people start saying, give us Barabbas. We'd rather have that guy. And, and you've got to realize, it, he transitions to calling them the, the people. Right? We've talked about all these different audiences that have been around Jesus, and one of those was the crowds that were following him. And for a long time, these crowds have been very pro-Jesus. I mean, even just at the beginning of this week of Jesus' life, they were all throwing palm branches in front of him and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, this guy is awesome. He's our king. But we see how, to use a phrase that we use here at CRC a lot, uh, they weren't all in on Jesus. They weren't all in on what his actual mission was. They were all in as far as, oh, he's going to make my life better. But once it got to, no, I have to still kind of suffer through and endure this for a while. He's not my, he's not my political hope. He's not my, necessarily my physical hope. He's more of a long-term solution. We see where their hearts actually were. We see that they weren't fully committed to what, he was, what his mission was. They weren't fully in on that. They wanted something for them that would benefit them right now. So it's less surprising that they're like, release the murderer and kill Jesus, who was this peaceful guy. Because now we're kind of getting into their mindset of what it is they actually want. They want salvation for now. They want something physical. They're putting their hope in the government to save them. Might sound a little familiar. (laughs) And so Pilate, again... All of this, the reason he's choosing Barabbas as the guy to release is because he doesn't think Jesus is guilty. His wife has even sent word to him saying, don't do anything to this guy. He's innocent. I've been being tormented by dreams saying that this guy is innocent. Don't do anything. So Pilate is trying in some way to manipulate the situation where he gets out. And so he asks them a couple of times, should I release Barabbas? And then he even goes so far as to say, or should I release Jesus, who is called Christ? Right? He's reminding them who Jesus has claimed to be. He's not afraid of Jesus being the spiritual savior because he doesn't believe that. But he's trying to remind the people, look, you're calling him Christ because Christ represents hope. He's supposed to be the guy that you're placing your hope in. And now you're just going to throw him out. Right? He's going back and using their own words, their own beliefs, the things that they were looking for to try to calm them down and say, look, guys, this isn't the guy that I think we should kill here. <laughs> 
right? He's trying to he's trying to soothe them. He's using their language. He's trying to say that Jesus was supposed to be the one that they saw as representing their hope. But no, they want to put their hope in the short-term solution. And we still sometimes do that today. Sometimes we put we put our hope in government, sometimes we put our hope in job security, sometimes we put our hope in any number of things that aren't Jesus. We're looking for some sort of short-term solution to the things that we're facing. And we don't, we don't kind of play the long game on this. But they say, and, and, and this is probably the darkest moment in Israel's history. He says, what should I do with Jesus? And they say, let him be crucified. And he says, why? What evil has he done? And they shouted all the more. Let him be crucified. Let's go ahead and keep reading. 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. We'll talk about scourging next week, or in two weeks. We'll talk about that. I don't want to focus on that today. But, but I want us to try to get into the mindset of what, what Pilate is dealing with at this moment. Um, I don't remember what grade I was in. Somewhere around fourth or fifth grade. This was while we, we were still over at Heritage. And the whole children's ministry one Sunday... We did like a mock courtroom thing, and everybody was given different roles, and we were going to have a trial for Pilate to see if we thought that he was actually guilty of the murder of Jesus. Um, I was Pilate. <laughs> awesome. But it was terrifying because then there, I mean, we really like ran this like a real courtroom thing. Like they brought me in in legit handcuffs. They sat me down, they put me on the stand, they asked me all of these questions, trying to get inside my mindset. What is it? Why did you do this? Was it because you were afraid of the people? You were afraid you were going to lose your job that you did this? And, and you know, it's like, we were a bunch of kids. We're asking, it's pretty heavy stuff that we're talking about. Um, oh, and by the way, in the end, they found me guilty, and they didn't kill me. They just gave me life in prison. They wanted to do death sentence but I don't think the children's pastor was going to let them give me the death sentence. Probably a good idea. Something about teaching your kids to... Anyways. But the whole exercise was to get us to kind of think through who do we place the blame on in this? Because, because we see this... Pilate is trying to say, I don't want to feel guilty about this. Right? Washing my hands of this whole thing. Right? If you want to kill him, that's on you. That's not on me. And what he thought was that, that as he washes his hands, he's absolving himself of the guilt for killing Jesus. But I'm going to try to build a case that he was guilty. The people were guilty. We're guilty. We all are. Um, a couple of weeks, months later, Peter is going to give a sermon at Pentecost. 
Um, and he's going to specifically blame Israel and the Romans for killing Jesus. Uh, this is Acts 2, verse 23. Peter's talking about Jesus. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So these people are saying, oh yeah, his blood's on us. Blood's on us totally. We'll take it. We're fine. We just want to get rid of him. We're fine being guilty. And Peter says, yeah, you're guilty of that. But, but these lawless men, they killed him too. And it's on them. But here's the thing. Because he says so much more than just that in that verse. Right? Look at that. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. All of this is happening because God oversaw it, because God sovereignly wanted it to happen. As painful as it was, as unjust as it was, God had a specific purpose in this moment. Back to Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All. When Jesus died, when he took on all of that, he took on all of our sin. So no one is innocent. There's not one of us in here who could raise our hand and say... It's not my fault that Jesus was killed. Because we are all in on this. We are all sinful. Sure, Pilate wasn't the one who wanted to kill Jesus. His motivation was, in fact, I want to try to save his life. But that doesn't absolve him of being a sinner. That doesn't keep him from having the stain of sin, the broken relationship of God, for which Jesus was coming to die from being present in his life. Therefore, it was always his fault. It was always our fault. It was always the people's fault. We are all guilty of the death of Jesus. No, you may not have been the one who is going to be the, who swung the hammer to drive the nail into his hand. No, you weren't the one who scourged him. And again, we'll talk about that in a couple weeks. Bad. You weren't physically there. But when it says, the Lord laid on him, the iniquity of all of us, we were all guilty. All of us are the reason that Jesus did this thing. None of us can escape the responsibility for the death of Jesus. But here's the cool thing. The very act that we the people, Pilate, all of these people are responsible for. The thing that he's guilty of, killing Jesus, this is so cool, is the very act that by God's design was the means that God would absolve them of that act. You get that? Like, the thing that Pilate and the people are guilty of, they killed Jesus, is the very thing that God used to make forgiveness for that sin possible for them.
even at the lowest point, even at the worst moment, when all of the people's hearts are turned so far away from God, they're so jealous for their own king, their own political salvation, to the point that they're willing to murder an innocent man. God is taking that because God is taking those emotions and using those emotions as his means of bringing salvation for the very sin that is present in those emotions. I think that's amazing. I think that's so cool that, that God is so perfect, has so perfectly orchestrated all of these things so that he can bring about salvation for us. And so, like, as we're going to get ready to wrap this up, we're going to get into uh, to all of the, the stuff that Jesus is about to go through on our behalf in a couple of weeks. But I just want us to realize that all of this is happening. He's silently taking all of this criticism because he's willing to obey his father because he knows that this is the only way that he can save us. This is the only way that we could be saved. There was nothing that we could do to make ourselves righteous before God. It was only through the sacrifice of Jesus. It was the only way. And so I want us to think about what are the things that we're putting our hope in? Are we, are we looking for a short-term solution? Are we looking for a king who can come save us now? Or we're willing to play the long game and trust that Jesus is who he says he is. And that all of these things that happened, these things that actually happened, were done so that he could draw us to himself, make us his sons and daughters. And that, that down the line, whenever that day is that he comes back, he gets to be here with us and rule and reign over us physically. And we get to have that king then. That's where I want us to be.